this week, I've been thinking about all of you who are gathered here this morning. I didn't know exactly who'd be here, but with anticipation, just practicing the habit of thinking about my church and anticipating seeing your faces and thinking about all those who gather online. We know each week you gather on our live stream and we see you there. And I thought a lot about the things that you're facing and the things that you're walking through in your life on a daily basis and the specific needs that you have, those I know of, and those that I just don't, I don't really know what's going on. What about the specific challenges, difficulties you may be walking through with your family, with your friendships, different relationships, with your, your work, all the things that make up your life. And I think about those things when I was reading the text this week. There's a line that just pops off the page. It describes the disciples. It says they're in a boat, and it says the disciples are straining at the oars. Hear that? They're in a boat, and it says the disciples are straining at the oars. And I think about all the individuals that make up our church and all of the things that you're doing in this world, all of the responsibilities that you have, all of the kinds of challenges you may be facing. That's just representing just Legacy Church, just our church. And I would bet you that every one of you know what it's like to feel overwhelmed in your life in a moment or in a season, am I right? You know what it means to be Straining at the oars. That's been on my mind this week because I've thought quite a bit about you and about this text here. And I know as you're sitting there listening, some of you, you right now, you need strength because you're getting tired of straining at the oars. Some of you need peace because you've really been wrestling with something for a while now. And some of you, you need comfort for the pain that you have experienced. Others of you need wisdom because you've got some decisions to make and you've been fighting through, what do I do? Do I go this way or that way? Some of you, you just love to know what joy feels like. It just You can't think of the last time you felt like you were full of joy. And others of you, you want to be loved. Some of you, there's some of you, you can be even in a crowded room and feel like you're all alone. Like nobody really knows what you're going through or knows what it's like to be you or understands you. And maybe there's some of you, you hear that and you go, that's me, all of the above. I choose D, all of the above. That's me. It's true of me. And if that's not you, you're all very smart people, so you know it's the stuff that you don't see coming that usually takes you out of commission, right? And so we don't yet know what challenges that this week or this year will bring our way. Have you ever been in the middle of a tough season, though, a storm, a difficult moment in life? Have you ever thought, in, maybe you didn't say it out loud, but in your head you're like, God, what are you doing right now in the middle of this? Have you ever thought that before? Maybe you've thought that. Maybe you've just wondered, God, I don't understand. Am I supposed to learn something here? Is there a lesson in all of this? Am I going through this for some great purpose? Wouldn't you like to answer that question this morning? You know the answer to that question? Again, I don't know every specific thing that everyone's going through. That would be silly for me to pretend I did. But I can tell you this text tells us in general what it is God is doing in the middle of every storm that goes on in the middle of a broken world. If you want to know the answer to it, grab your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 6. It's our third week in Mark chapter 6, and this is from the God who does know everything that you're going through, and he does know everything that you will face, that you haven't yet faced. He already knows what storms you will have to weather in this side of life before Christ returns. 
And we're picking up from where we were last week. If you were here last week, we saw a familiar story. Even if you weren't here, you may know it. Jesus fed, it says 5,000 men, and it says that that was just the men, that women and children were added. Some have speculated 12 or even 20,000 people were gathered listening to Jesus teach. And it was time to eat, and Jesus did a, call it a miracle. He broke bread, a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. He broke bread and fed millions or thousands of people. It feels like millions. Thousands of people on just a little bit of food. And we call that a, a miracle. It's a miracle that he did. And by that same standard, like this text just has a bunch of miracles. Look at verse 48 of, of chapter 6. We're going to count miracles. Verse 40, 48 says, Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. Here's miracle number one. Jesus is not with the disciples physically. He's far off on a mountain praying, but from a far off distance, he's able to, to miracle, to see the disciples and the situation that they're in, and he knows exactly what they need. That is a miracle. So I say miracle. It's a miracle. Miracle number two, he's able to reach them. This is just silly. We don't think about this. He's able to reach them where they are out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee more quickly walking, walking than they had been rowing for hours and hours and hours. He just is able to get to them. That's a what? It's a miracle. Miracle number three, he does so by walking on water, which is what we typically focus on in this story. We go, Jesus walks on water. It's a Miracle, right. Number fifty, page, number four is on page, uh, verse 51. It says, he got into the boat with them, and what happened? The wind stopped. It's another miracle. There's just all of these incredible miracles taking place. It's no wonder the disciples at the end of verse 51 says that they were utterly astonished at the things that were happening. There are so many miracles. And so before we dive deeper into the text, I want to talk to you about miracles for a second. I want to give you a perspective to think about the miracles of Jesus whenever you encounter them. It's going to be a miracle if the power doesn't go out today. <laughs> of the Lord, right? When Jesus does a miracle, whenever he breaks into the natural world, we're getting a picture of a reality that always exists, it always has, it always will exist. It's existing now, though it's shrouded and it's hidden from us often. Whenever God breaks into the natural order of the world, it shows us the way things were intended to be, the way things should be, and the way things will be. Do you see those three things? The way things were intended to be, the way things should be now, though it's shrouded, though it's hidden in this broken world, and the way things will be. Miracles Hear me, church. They're not an upending of the natural order, but they are a restoring of the natural order, the way God created things to be. It's a sneak peek of the, the future reality of the heavenly order when Jesus returns that we'll experience on the everyday. When Jesus breaks into the natural world, this is just what's natural to Jesus, unnatural to us but natural to him. When Jesus walks on water, you say, well, how is that a picture of how things were intended to be, how they should be, and how they will be? Well, when Jesus walks on water, he shows us that he has authority over all of creation, which makes sense because Jesus is the creator, that he would have authority over creation. Because in John 1, it says in the beginning, the word, which is a way that John talks about Jesus being the revealed God. It's how we know God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things that came into being came into being by him and through him. And nothing that was created came into being apart from Jesus. He's the creator, and so he has authority over creation. 
shun. And so it's not a big thing for Jesus to walk on water because Jesus parted the waters, created the seas. He made all things, so he has authority over all things. Doesn't that make sense? It's reasonable when you think about it that way. Why wouldn't Jesus be able to multiply five loaves and a couple of fish? He's the one who formed the earth and everything in it. He filled the earth with animals. He filled the sea with all of the fish of the sea. Why would it not be easy for him then to multiply a couple of fish to feed thousands of people? He's the one in whom the power to have bread by morning in the wilderness when the Israelites were wandering around in the desert would just appear. Bread would appear. Why would he not be able to break bread? and feed thousands of people with it. It's not an overexertion of Jesus' power. It's not a party trick for him. It's just what Jesus does because he's God. And whenever Jesus does miracles, this is what he's doing. He is authenticating his identity. He is revealing, he is proving that he's not just some guy. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He is God himself, and I'm proving it to you because I do the things only God could do. He's doing that. He's proving who he is, and he's giving authentication to his authority in everything that he does and everything that he says. Look who it is. I am God. And so what I say is perfect, and what I say is truth, and what I do is real and powerful. And if we want to bring this in really closer to the context of the story that we're going to read now, and the problem that we're going to work on, which is, what is God doing in the middle of the storms in my life? Then maybe the point is that if we are to trust Jesus for the seas of tranquility, that that future after he's returned and when everything is made new and everything is made right, if we're to trust him for the seas of tranquility, then we must trust him for the storms of the Sea of Galilee, which is life as we live in it right now. Does that make sense? I want to unpack that. And I want to show you four things that are happening in this text that God is doing, that Jesus is doing in the literal storm of the disciples, that he is also doing in all of the storms that we face in a broken world. Four things that he's doing. The first thing, in the middle of the storm, our self-sufficiency is challenged. That's what's happening here. Think about the disciples who are going out on the the sea right now, in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had just done a, a miracle. He had done the feeding miracle. And verse 45 says, immediately after that, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. I want you to notice the urgency in Mark's telling of this story. He didn't say eventually or say Jesus thought about it for a bit or they had a debate about what to do next. It says, immediately he made them get into a boat. And Mark uses this word, the reason I hold it up, Mark uses this word a lot, 41 times. It's a word, euthus, and it means immediately here. In other places, it's translated as straight, but its most literal translation is well-placed. Do you hear that? So Jesus has just done this massive feeding miracle, and Jesus, who is God, says, it is well-placed that you are not here now. It is well-placed that you would be out in the middle of the sea of Galilee. Why is that? Why would Jesus send them away immediately? And notice also it says that he made them. It's not a suggestion. He didn't say, hey guys, why don't you, you know, go fishing or go hang out for a little bit. It says he made them get in the boat and go now. Why? Mark doesn't give us a whole lot more detail in this moment, but John 6 helps to shine some light on the picture. When John writes about this same feeding miracle, he says this, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, 
the crowds, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. And Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, of course, he is the Messiah. He is the king of kings. He is the one who has come to rescue. But he's not going to do it like they expect or like they want. And I I can imagine it would be tempting for the disciples. I mean, listen, ministry can be hard and it can be grueling. But when there is ministry success, there's a temptation that takes place. And there was a great success that just happened here when Jesus did this incredible miracle and the crowds were going, whoa, he's the dude. And not only that, but they had experienced a modicum of success themselves. Remember a couple of weeks ago I told you how Jesus sent them out in twos? And they're going, I don't know if I can do this. But then they came back and they had all these stories. God had worked miracles through them. And if you can like put yourself in their place for just a moment, like Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they're going to people, and there's a, a guy who's crippled, and there's a, there's a woman who is on her deathbed, and there's a kid who has a demon in them, and they reach out and touch this person, and God heals this person. And people are looking at them saying, man, look at what he has done. And they begin to mistake these disciples as the source rather than the instrument. And there's this temptation when you experience any success in the things of God to begin to think, well, you know, I did do a pretty good job. I mean, God is in control, but I I was kind of amazing today, wasn't I? Did you see what I did? There's this temptation when the reality is, no, God is amazing. He is the absolutely amazing one, and it is amazing that he desires and he wills to do amazing things beyond my ability and beyond my intellect in and through our lives. Isn't that amazing? So I don't know if the disciples in this moment were beginning perhaps to have a little temptation on the heels of all of this success to to go look at what we're doing, look at what we're a part of. Or if in this moment when the crowds are beginning to surge and be like, this is our guy, and Jesus knows they're about to try to take him by force and make him his king, that they may have their expectations of where they're going and what happens next set by their perception of what's happening in the moment with human eyes. Or no, exactly, but it's not really speculation that they didn't understand the moment because in verse 52, it says they had seen these things, they had heard these things, but they hadn't gained any insight. Their hearts were hardened. They had done miracles. God had done miracles through them. They had heard Jesus speaking. They had watched things. They were seeing the movement happening, but they didn't have any insight. Their hearts were hardened. And so Jesus, with a sense of urgency, immediately he made them with a sense of urgency, it's, he hurries them on board. It is not well-placed for you to be here. It's well-placed for you to be away from here right now. And maybe it's so they wouldn't catch the thing that was spreading through the crowd, or maybe it's so that they wouldn't add to it in any way. Immediately, he made them go. Now, one of the things that's happening here is the first thing that happens whenever you and I face storms in life. Our sense of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and self-dependence begins to crumble. We may try to fortify ourselves and pretend like we got this, but the reality is inside we know I don't got this. And our self-sufficiency begins to struggle. For them, what looked like what was happening with Jesus is beginning to crumble. Their expectations and plans, like this is all going, let's keep going, push further. But instead he says, no, go away right now. And it's beginning to challenge their perception of what's happening. And I think it's funny where he sends them is is a place that they know deeply. They know really well. He sends them into a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And remember, most of these guys, several of these guys, were lifelong fishermen, generational fishermen. That's what they did. It's what they knew. 
It's like breathing for them. It's no big deal. And all of these guys grew up around the Sea of Galilee, so for them, getting in a boat and rowing across the Sea of Galilee would have been easier even than walking around the Sea of Galilee for them. And you look at the Sea of Galilee, here's a picture. Its widest spot is about eight miles wide. And Bethsaida was not at the widest spot, but a little further south of that. So they're at a narrower spot. It should have taken them less than three hours to row across the Sea of Galilee. And yet, when you look at the story, it shows us that they've been on the water rowing something like six to ten hours by the time that Jesus came out to them on the sea. How, how do we know that? Well, we know that because, one, it was already late back before the feeding miracle when Jesus had been teaching the crowds and the disciples said, Master, it's getting a little late and the people are going to be hungry. We should send them away now, right? It was already late. And Jesus said, no, you should feed them. And they said, well, we don't have any money. He said, no, no, go and look for food and bring what you find and we'll take care of business. So it's already late, and now they're going to look for food. They're going among thousands of people. They come back and bring the little bit of food they could find. Then Jesus begins to multiply and do a miracle. Then they pass this out to thousands of people, and thousands of people sit on the lawn eating a fish and bread meal. And then the gospel says that they go back and they collect all the leftovers and bring it back to Jesus, and they count it up. Time has passed since they already said it is late. And now, verse 46 he dismisses them, he dismisses the crowd, and after bidding them farewell, Jesus left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Now it's late evening, and by moonlight, verse 48, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch, he came to them walking on the sea. Little note. Mark is writing to a primarily Roman audience, and on the Roman clock, the fourth watch is between 3 and 6 a.m. So they had been out there a long time. This wasn't like Gilligan, a three-hour tour. They had been rowing, straining at the oars, and they're still in the middle, it says, of the sea, straining at the oars. And you can imagine, then, their fatigue. You can imagine their concern and their worry, their emotional and their physical stress. They had just been on a spiritual high that went from, we get to do and see amazing things. We're telling each other and telling Jesus about it. We get to have a quiet time alone with Jesus. And then he fed thousands of people in a miracle. They're on a high and then they're sent out into the middle of the sea. And now even the things that they have known to do their entire life are not working for them. And I think that this is the beginning of the real miracle in Mark 6. There's a lot of little miracles, but I think this is the real miracle that's taking place with Jesus and the disciples because life, so much of life, we think it's about us. It's not about us and what we know and what we can do, but it's about who he is, what he is doing, and us finding our rest in him. And this is the moment that that miracle begins to dawn on them. We need to necessarily be reminded by moments where we come to the end of ourselves, the end of our perceptions, the end of our abilities, the end of our plans. We need to be reminded that the gospel of self-sufficiency eventually leads to a life of spiritual poverty, which makes us to be spiritually sick, and it causes us to be unable to receive the help that we really need in this life. And we've got to come to the end of ourselves to experience that to be reminded of that so often. I wonder if you can think right now 
of, of something in your life in which you've been resting in your ability. You've been dependent upon your knowledge and your resources. Where does your self-dependence and self-reliance need to be challenged? Where is there a shift that needs to happen in your perceptions or your expectations? Where does it need to be shifted so that you can be ready to receive what it is that God has for you? Where does your self-reliance need to be challenged? And however you answer that question is going to lead you to the second thing that Jesus is doing in the storm. The second thing in the storm that's happening is our desperation for help increases. Right? When we begin to recognize where our self-reliance is failing us, then our desperation to receive some kind of help begins to awaken in us. They're straining at the oars. They're at the end of themselves. And it's interesting. They are so overwhelmed and so frantic in this moment. It says they supposed it was a ghost when Jesus walked out to them and they screamed. Right? They know Jesus. They know what he looks like. Physically, they've been walking with him. Everywhere he went, they went. They've been eating with him, singing with him, laughing with him, telling jokes on the road with him, doing miracles with him. They were more familiar with him than anyone else at this moment because their eyes were fixed on him. And yet, when they're out in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the storm, when Jesus comes to them, they supposed it was a ghost and they cried out for they all saw him. They saw him and they were terrified. And you can kind of sense their state of mind. They knew they needed help. But when help arrived, they didn't have even the senses to recognize the person they knew and they had come to trust the most. Isn't it, isn't it funny that we even need his help to recognize and receive his help? We can't even receive help without his help. And here they're, they're, they're absolutely, they're out of their minds, which I'm like this at times. I mean, I don't know if you're like this at times. I know who my Lord is. I know his faithfulness to me. I know his goodness and his kindness to me. But I get in the middle of something and I'm stuck and I forget all about it. I forget that Jesus said, come to me, all who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for my, 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 uh, my sorry, for my, I'm gentle and humble of heart, right? You help me. I say this like every two weeks. I say, I say you know, Matthew 11, 28 and 29. For I'm gentle and lowly of heart. I forget this. And I'm in the middle of something. And what do I do? I fight, I, I flight, or I freeze. I fight in my strength to try to overcome this thing that I'm facing. I freeze. I get paralyzed with fear. And I go, I can't do anything. I just shut down. Or I'm paralyzed in fear. And I try to run. I try to, I try to get away so that I don't have to endure the pain of it. And I forget that Jesus said, I'm, I'm accessible. I'm gentle. And I'm humble in heart. I'm for you. I'm with you, and I'm for you. And I forget this in the middle of the storm. And the disciples had forgotten it in the middle of the storm. And I wonder what it is in your life that, that has you so desperate for help, that's pressed deep inside of you, this feeling of fight, flight, or freeze. And what you really need is to stop and to look, to consider Jesus, and to receive his help. I wonder what that thing is that you've been fighting in your strength. That thing you said, it will never be any different than it is. This is just how it will always be. That you need to stop and fix your eyes on him and receive his help. And here, Jesus helps his disciples who were desperate in confusion. And the way he first helps them is by reminding them of who he is as he walks to them out on the water. And it's, it's interesting, Mark, 
he includes a couple of clues. He tucks a couple of clues into here. First verse 48 says, He came to them walking on the sea. Look at this. He intended to pass them by. That's the first clue. I'm going to come back to it. He intended to pass them by. Second clue, middle of verse 50. Immediately he spoke with them and he said to them, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. That's the second clue. You might mark those two things in your Bible. He intended to pass them by. And it is I, don't be afraid. So the first clue, he goes, it says he, he intended to pass them by, which makes very little sense to us. Why would Jesus, seeing them in desperation, walk out to them, I mean, miracles all the way, come out to them in the middle of the sea, but instead of stopping, why would he intend, it was his purpose, to pass them by? That seems ridiculous. It seems silly. Why would Mark even include that? That seems weird and confusing. Well, let me remind you of a story in Exodus 33. When Moses and the people of God were in the desert and things were not going well for them. And Moses cried out to God and said, God, would you just show me your glory? That I would know that you were there and you were above it all and that you were with us. Would you dazzle me with some sign that I would know that things are going to be okay? And here's how God responds. God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have, what, passed by. Hang on to that story. I'll give you another one. Elijah, the prophet. He'd been battling with, with the prophets of false gods. And he was in danger. And his life, Jezebel, was going to have him killed. She threatened his life and he went on the run. And he was so exhausted and so afraid, it says he sat at the foot of a tree and he cried out to God, God, would you just kill me now? I can't do this anymore. Just let it all end. And God said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. Not only was Jesus walking on water, and that's an identification that he's not just a normal guy, but he's God. He's the master over creation. But here, he's passing them by just as God did in the Old Testament with Moses on Sinai and with Elijah on Mount Horeb. Jesus is passing, it's intending to pass the disciples by that they would see his glory. And in the same way that God had comforted his people in the Old Testament, they would be comforted that my God is with me and look what he can do. He's using the language of the divine passing by his people. It's the first clue. Second clue is the phrase, it is I, in verse 50, which is the same wording that Jesus uses very often when you read uh, Jesus speaking in the Gospels. It's a combination of words, ego, a me. It means literally, I am. Say, I am. I am. That's familiar, isn't it? It's familiar to God's people. Jesus said it a lot. He said, I'm the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He said, I am the door. He said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, even before Abraham was born, 41 long generations before, even before Abraham, I am, Jesus says. He could have said anything. He could have walked up and said, guys, you dummies, you're afraid. Look, it's me. He could have said, what's up, fellas? 
But no, he chooses to use the identification that he would use so often, and he used them in all these cases to show a unique aspect of who he is as God. In all of those cases, he's identifying himself as the eternal, incarnate God who always was, who is, and always will be, right? And so when he comes to them, he comes to them intending to pass them by, revealing his glory and saying, the great I am is with you in the storm. The great I am is with you in the storm. And that's the main reason I think that Mark includes this in, in the gospel. It's to help us, the third thing that's happening in the storm, is to help the disciples and to help us to begin to have a greater awareness of his presence that we're not alone. Our awareness of God's presence grows in the middle of the storm because our desperation for his help increases. And so when our eyes begin to look out for that help, when we begin to realize my self-sufficiency isn't enough, I need help, we begin to look and our eyes land upon Christ, our awareness of our belief in, our dependence on his presence with us, that the great I am is with us in the storm, grows. And I, I, like I could spend hours surveying the Bible, showing you how God promises and then delivers on the promise that he is faithful to always be with his people. I want to give you three to look up as homework. Uh, Joshua 1.9. Matthew 28, 20, and John 14, 16. And I give you just three. They're everywhere, but I give you these three because there you see Father, Son, and Spirit promising the triune God is always faithful to be with His people no matter what storms that we face. We're not alone. No wind and the waves may come down upon us. We are not alone, for He's with us. And it's meant to be a little like a child in a storm and a tornado Going to the closet because the storm sirens are going off, which creates absolute havoc in my house. Everyone runs to the, to the closet and hides because there's a tornado, but it's meant to be the comfort that's felt when dad puts his hand on child's shoulder saying, I've got you. Or when mom embraces the child and says, it's okay, I'm here. That's what we're meant to see here. And I love this book Leslie Gold wrote. She said, sometimes the Lord calms the storm, sure, but sometimes he lets the storm rage and he calms his child. I think both things are happening here. Jesus is he's going to calm his child within the storm, but then verse 51, he calms the storm. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished by the presence of God with them in the storm. He got into the boat, and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished. God is with me in the storm. How could I have ever forgotten? What Jesus is doing here, four things. Breaking down their self-sufficiency, their understanding and expectations of what life is in this moment. He's growing in them an intensity of their need, an awareness of their need for help. He's turning their eyes upon him that their awareness of his presence would grow. And because of that in the middle of the storm, their faith in Jesus is growing. He's building their faith in his presence and in his sovereignty as God. And I just look at the verses, verse 48, he saw them and they're, they're starting to believe that, that Jesus sees me. His eye is on the sparrow, how much more is his eye upon me? It says he interceded for them. They're beginning to, to depend on that. He intercedes for me. It says he heard them. In verse 50, he's with them. In verse 51, their faith in his compassion is beginning to grow in them. And I want you to think about this. This is the second storm in three chapters that they've encountered on the Sea of Galilee. At some point, like I'm not getting on a boat again. I'm done. 
Chapter 4 of Mark, they're in the Sea of Galilee. They're on a boat. And do you know where Jesus was at that moment? He was asleep in the boat, right? He's asleep in the boat. Now, in chapter 6, they're on the boat. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And there's a storm. And where's Jesus? It's on the mountain. He's praying. Right? And there are going to be more storms in their life, both literally and metaphorically. There will be more storms in their life once Jesus has ascended and gone to his throne before he'll come back for us, where he's gone to prepare a place for us, but he'll come again, receive us to himself, that we'll be with him, right? There will be more storms that they will face, some storms that will take their lives. But Jesus is step by step increasing their faith. He's growing their faith from in the boat with them to on the mountain to, and lo, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. You remember earlier this year, we, we did, you know, I don't know, 15 weeks in Acts or something like that. Do you remember the week we looked at Peter and John being arrested by the Sanhedrin? They had just done a healing miracle, and they were preaching Jesus in the street. They were arrested by the religious police. They were thrown in jail, and they were awaiting uh, a trial before the Sanhedrin. I want you to imagine this for just a moment. Can you close your eyes? Imagine just for a moment that they have put them in two cells and just picture it in, in your mind's eye. They're back to back with a cell wall between them. Try to imagine this conversation where John goes, Hey, hey, Peter. Peter says, Yeah, John. Hey, Peter, remember the time that Jesus was asleep in the boat and, and the storm was coming and he didn't even wake up at first? And John goes, Yeah, I, I remember that. John says to Peter, hey, Peter, remember you tried to walk on the water and then you sank? And Peter says, we don't talk about that one. Don't ever speak about that again. And John goes, yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, but remember how we didn't think he was with us. We thought we were all alone. <laughs> but we were wrong. He saw us. And he knew our need and he met our need. Do you remember that? And Peter says, yeah, John, I remember. John says, hey, Peter. Do you think this moment is like that? Peter says, yeah, John. I think we're going to be okay. You can open your eyes. This is what God does in the middle of the storms that we face in life. This is what he does. He reminds us that, that no, we're not enough on our own. We have a great need. Quit pretending like we're okay. He reminds us that we're not alone. That help is here. Help is now. We were never meant to live life independent on our own. We were meant to live life in union with our Creator, the one who loves our souls. We were meant to remember that He's here with us and He is here for us. And we were meant to grow in faith that He will never leave us alone and we can and we should expect that we will have storms in life until the day that Jesus returns and makes all things new. There will be times that we will come to the end of our, our own resources. There will be times where we just, we, we go, I just can't. Have you ever said that? I just can't. 
And there will be moments, though he is near us, we will feel like Jesus isn't near to us and we'll doubt because there's a thing called spiritual warfare taking place and we'll forget that he's with us in the storm. This will happen in the storm. We're going to face situations like this. And I need you to hear every time we face a storm, every time we walk through some difficulty in life, it is this moment, this opportunity to be broken down and to be reminded that life and life abundant comes only in Christ and that resurrection life comes after death. Death of what? Death of living life on our own. Resurrection life comes after that. And so in these moments where we go, I don't know how I'm going to make it another day. We turn our eyes upon Jesus, fix our eyes upon the author and the perfecter of our faith. Watch our lives. Sometimes he calms the storm, sometimes he calms the child within the storm. But watch our lives experience that abundant life He promised, even in the midst of storms. And here's the great news. What it does over and over again is it reminds us that it's never really been about our faith and our strength, but it's always been about His faithfulness. So now when I'm in a storm, I'm not like, how do I muster up the strength to endure through this? How do I have more faith, more faith so I can be a powerful Christian? But no, instead, in those moments I go, I got nothing. I got nothing but a heart that beats for you. And that's more than enough. When you look at the end of the story, Matthew's version of the story says the disciples now, they were in, who were in the boat, they worshipped Jesus saying, you certainly are God's son. Despite the storms, despite the pain of a broken world, we can remember that we're not alone in the storm. Even in the storm, he brings us what we need, and the storm isn't the end. Victory is the end. Life and life abundant when all things are made new. Can I pray for you? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move on these words in our minds and hearts. I have very little faith in my ability to convey the power and depth of the presence of Jesus with us. I have very little faith in myself to convey these things in a meaningful way, but I have all the faith in the world that you can do what I cannot. That's why I ask Holy Spirit. Would you bring strength to the weary, wisdom to the confused, peace to the anxious? Would you bring joy to the joyless and love to the empty? And for those who sit here saying no one really understands, I can't convince them, but would you help them to know that you see and understand Romans 8 says, even when we don't know how to pray, that you pray for us because you know us better than we know ourselves. So Spirit, would you move amongst your people, gathered in this room and gathered online. We are not done because you're not done. And so for the next few moments, Would you help us to still give our attention fully to you and to be open to the movement you have? Would you encourage our souls? In Jesus' name, amen.